few weeks ago when I began to prepare this particular study, I looked at the subject and I said, what on earth possessed me to deal with this? I do not know. I do not know unless it is because I'm so self-righteous that I think I could teach you all something. I had a, my publisher about, oh, five or six years ago said, uh, we want you to do a book on prayer. Can you do a book on prayer? I said, yeah, I can do a book on prayer. And uh, after three years of working on it, I realized I knew so little about it that we... Uh, canceled the contract. If I had three years to think about this, I would never have attempted this subject. I do not know what got in me. You know about the book, uh, Humility and How I Obtained It? There are copies available in the book room written by R.T. Kendall. No, that's just a little humor there, folks. And so that's that's what this is. For me to write, to, to, to pretend, I'm going to tell you how to overcome self-righteousness has to be a very presumptuous venture and uh, because I don't know of anybody who has overcome self-righteousness or who's qualified to speak on this. And yet, I do speak with authority for I am one of the most self-righteous persons that ever lived. Not was, but am. All right, here are my reasons for the subject. And I just pray that God will overrule and make it a blessing. It's like Romans 8:28. All things work together for good, but the fact that they work together for good doesn't mean it was right. You see, it's easy to say, ah, look how it turned out. I was right. No, doesn't mean you were right. It means that God was gracious. And, and so... Uh, I'm asking him to bail me out tonight. And if it's a good evening, you're going to see how gracious God can be. All right. Why this subject? How dare one speak on this? Seven reasons. Reason number one, we need to see the subtlety of self-righteousness. In other words, how it is there and you don't think it's there. Now, the unsubtle self-righteousness is seen in Luke chapter 18, uh, verse 11, where the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you, I am not like other men. Well, that's unsubtle. And you can easily see self-righteousness in that statement. If only all self-righteousness were that unsubtle. You see, it is so subtle, it is a part of us, and we're not aware of it. And he who thinks he's not self-righteousness, he, he who thinks he's not self-righteous, has no objectivity about himself. I use this phrase, having objectivity about oneself. It means the ability to stand above yourself or apart from yourself. And uh, that's an, uh, another subject. How many of us have that? All right, reason number one, we need to see the subtlety of being self-righteous. The second, we need to see the danger of it. And 
I can tell you, if ever there was a true statement, you listen to this, it is what is most obnoxious in God's sight. He doesn't like it. Strangely enough, it is very obnoxious in man's sight as well. Because we don't like it when we see it in another person. Reason number three for this study. We need to see self-righteousness in ourselves. We need to see it in ourselves. We must learn the signs and see them. See the danger signals. I often put it like this, and you've heard this before, but dare I say it again. When I talk about closing the time gap as much as possible between the moment of our self-righteousness and then when we see that we were self-righteous. You see, it's one thing to be self-righteous and ten years later you think, oh my, I can't believe it. Ten years it's taken me to see it. And so, what, whether it's self-righteousness or, or any sin, for some it takes years. For some it takes months. For some it takes weeks. For some it takes days. For some it takes hours. For some it takes minutes. For some it takes seconds. And if you can ever narrow the time gap to seconds, maybe you can see it coming and catch it. That's the, that's the goal. It's hard to see. We need to see it in ourselves. Some of us have never discerned it. For some, you may detect it early on, like the beginnings of cancer. But that's the third reason I do it, that we might see self-righteousness in ourselves. Reason number four. Self-righteousness is what keeps us from becoming Christians in the first place. You realize that, don't you? That's why people don't become Christians. It's their self-righteousness. They don't want to admit they need a savior. They don't want to climb down. They want to feel they can make it on their own. Uh, now, we, as Christians, we let it creep in as well. Uh, but it is what keeps us from becoming Christians. So that until we climb down from our self-righteous attitude, we will never be saved. I suppose everyone here is a Christian, although we've had one conversion, you know, through the school of theology that we've heard about. And maybe there's someone here right now, and your problem is that at, at bottom you still think you're going to get to heaven because you're good enough. You still think that, that if you just try your best and please the Lord, you're going to make it through. If you're thinking like that, you see, you're not converted yet. So it was seen, I, I, I'm not your judge, and maybe that was too strong, but, but be a little concerned. <laughs> be very concerned. You know, we only get to heaven because Jesus paid our debt. It's my only hope, I can tell you that. All right. So what keeps us from true conversion is our need to prove ourselves to God without the benefit of a mediator. Reason number five for dealing with this. Self-righteousness is what puts others off Christianity. It is the spirit of self-righteousness that turns people off 
Christians and turns them off the church. We therefore need to discern it in ourselves and deal with it, if only to remove this as a reason people give for not coming to church. You see, they, they know how much we say about Jesus and claim to, to know the Lord, and, and then they see in us uh, a smugness. And I'll come back to that word later. Uh, and, and it just puts them right off. And so we need to, to, to see that in ourselves. Because it's what puts others off Christianity. Reason number six. Self-righteousness is often what causes marriage breakdown and tension. In hu- and in tension in hum- human relationships as well as in the church. And so you can uh, see uh, factions in the church. Or perhaps you see it in the office. And people get against each other. And both stick to their guns, dig in their heels and the trouble gets worse. The one who is willing to climb down is often the one who will have to admit to being self-righteous. And that's hard to do. That is painful. Uh, And then the problem is, if we are willing to admit it, then we get self-righteous because we admitted it. You see there, I'm admitting that I'm self-righteous. Doesn't that make you think I'm great? And and I get self-righteous because I say it. I'm self-righteous when I say I'm not self-righteous. No, I'm... Well, you begin to see the difficulty. Reason number seven I deal with this. It is the greatest obstacle to true spirituality. Immorality. Immorality is no small obstacle to true spirituality. Believe it or not, in some ways, self-righteousness is worse. And the reason is this. Immorality is an obvious sin. But self-righteousness is easy to see in others, but it's hard to see in ourselves. All right, those are the seven reasons I give. I trust you think, well, so far so good. Uh, Maybe there's a place for dealing with this. But it's about time we define what we mean by self-righteousness. And here's the definition that I would give. It is a feeling of well-being, whether conscious or unconscious, that comes as a result of justifying ourselves. In a word, uh, I think we could just put it like this. It is self-justification. Now, we had a whole evening on justification by faith. And the word justification means uh, being made righteous. And we'll come back to that a little bit because this is, this is connected. All right. There's two ways to be made righteous. One is by faith and the other is by works. Uh, and so when you do it by yourself and you say you're righteous, uh, then you get a feeling of well-being. And you feel real good about it. And, uh, and you may realize that it's conscious and you may not realize it but, it. but people can sense it around you. So it may be conscious or unconscious. Now here's the difference. I say conscious when we know we feel good about ourselves. The reason being we know we've got it right. And when you know you've got it right, you kind of feel good about it, don't you? 
The unconscious feeling is when we're not aware that we are smug. I'll come back to that word. Even though at bottom we are sure we are right. And so this is, this is the problem. Here's a person who isn't aware that he's so self-righteous. He doesn't think he knows he's got it right. You can't tell him anything. And, 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 and if you were to say something to him, if I'm that way, and I'm that way so often, you, you can't convince me. I think, well, I'm sorry about that, but I've, I've just got it right. And, uh, and so this is the problem. All right. We justify ourselves by defending our works or actions or even our words. We say, I know I'm right. We feel good inside. Now, there are two kinds of being made righteous, two kinds of justification, which means being made right or righteous. One is justification by faith. One is justification by works. When we justify ourselves, it is justification by works. All right. When we justify ourselves, it is because we feel our works or our words were right. Or righteous. You say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, you see, this is the problem. We want to get it right. We want to live godly lives. And it does lead to a feeling of well-being. And, and I wrestle with 1 John 3, 20, 21 all the time. You know, it, it says if God, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. But then if our heart doesn't condemn us, we can ask what we will because we know that we please him. And so you want to feel that you are pleasing him. And then, if you're not careful, before you know it, you develop a feeling that is not justified. It, it's, it's because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And uh, this is why this is such a difficult study. And uh, I'm struggling uh, to be as clear as I can and yet make it obvious that we're all this way. And yet it's dangerous. You say, well, if you can't help it. Well, the goal of this is so that we'll be just a little bit less self-righteous. Let's put it that way. Hopefully a little bit less that way. All right. I call it a dangerous feeling. It leads to gloating. It leads to smugness. Why dangerous? All right, reason number one, it is divisive. It's what separates Christians. It's what separates friends. It separates close friends. The second, it is difficult to see in ourselves because we say, I can't help it if I happen to be right. And if you feel, you know, that you have got it right, well, therefore... How do you avoid being self-righteous? And this is why it's dangerous. You say, well, it's better off, you're better off to be wrong. Well, surely that's not the answer either. Third reason it's dangerous, we become unteachable. Fourth, we are defensive. And if those four reasons aren't enough, how about this? We grieve the Holy Spirit. And when we grieve the Holy Spirit, what happens is, we lose presence of mind. We're left to ourselves. And, and, and you just have no ability to speak with, with any authority or anointing. 
All right. That's why you don't want ever to grieve the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is not grieved, you're at peace, you have control, and you're able to say it right. When you've grieved the Spirit, you lose that, and everything will come out wrong. Now let me give you some examples of being self-righteous. And uh, I want you along the way to tick off any of, the, of those that you think may apply to you. Now, if these don't apply to you, don't worry. But if I should happen to say anything that applies to you, make a little note. Well, he got me there. We're going to have uh, a number of examples. Example number one, being judgmental. Does anybody here have that problem? Being judgmental. Matthew 7, verse 1. Do not judge or you too will be judged. If ever they were true words, there they are. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And then Jesus asked the question, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You're looking at one who's taken the plank out of his own eye, and I can now judge all of you. <laughs> if only. The reason Jesus put it that way is you are never going to get the plank out of your own eye and you're never going to have a right to judge somebody else. You think you do, but you don't. All right. Self-righteousness is essentially what lies behind the pointing of the finger. Listen to these heart-searching words. In Isaiah chapter 58, he says... Uh, in verse 9, Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, Here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk. And so, what is that uh, chapter about? Well, at the beginning of Isaiah 58, uh, here were the Jews complaining that though they fast, and pray, God isn't taking any notice of them. And they were wanting to get God's attention, and, and, and they say, Lord, we've fasted, we've prayed, and you're not listening to us. Maybe somebody here like that. Maybe you're trying to get God's attention, and maybe you're praying with all your heart, and you're, you're wanting to get close to God, and, and you're just saying, Lord, please, I want to draw nigh to you. And you're fasting and you're giving up meals. And you know what Isaiah said? He said, the kind of fasting you're doing, you're really enjoying. It's not fasting of meals and, and, and just having sackcloth and ashes. He says, you're, you're loving that. Uh, you, you don't, that's not really fasting. Try this for a fast. Do away with the pointing of the finger. You know, I think a month ago they had no smoking day. And everybody's supposed to give up smoking for one day. Well, why don't you have a no pointing of the finger day? Go one day. Can you do it? 
All right. Well, it's, it's hard, isn't it? All right. Okay. All right. Okay. We've, you've made your point. Let that be it for now, if you don't mind. All right. So why do we judge? There, there is a feeling that somehow we are competent to judge and stems from the feeling that we are okay, others are not. So being judgmental refers to motives. And the reason I say that is because it uh, doesn't mean we should not make a righteous judgment. Uh, you know, there are verses that talk about making a righteous judgment. In fact, Jesus said in John 7:24, stop judging by mere appearances and make a righteous judgment. It means uh, to be true to yourself, uh, and you've got to make decisions all the time. It means making a right decision. Uh, so that doesn't mean uh, don't make a good judgment or a right decision when it says do not judge. What it means is that we are never allowed by the Holy Spirit to offer opinions on the motives or spiritual state of others. Spiritual state of others, however clear such may seem to be us, seem to us, we we may be so convinced that we've got a person figured out, and and uh, that the Lord has shown us something about so and so, and uh, and we give them you know this word, when uh, the truth is, all we're doing is judging, and here's Jesus saying it in Luke six thirty seven. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. All right. How many passed on that? Anybody here that's not judgmental? You, you don't need uh, one day of no pointing of the finger. Anybody here like that? Okay. David, your wife's hand's in the air. <laughs> no, that, that was Doris, wasn't it, Bert? Second example. Does anybody have this problem? Being defensive. Being defensive. Uh, so many verses. I don't know why I particularly used 1 Corinthians 1.12. It just showed uh, uh, at the beginning of the letter, uh, the Apostle Paul was having to deal with the, a particular attitude or spirit in Corinth. They were defensive, and they did it this way. They said, I follow Paul, or another, I follow Apollos, or another, I follow Cephas. Still another says, I'll, do out, I'll outdo all of you. I follow Christ. You see, the greatest freedom is having nothing to prove. I'm going to come back to that phrase in a moment. When we are changed from glory to glory, it is liberty and joy. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But when we're in the flesh, we feel a need to prove ourselves. When we are full of the Spirit, that need disappears. But if I need to say I have nothing to prove, then I have something to prove. So it's, it's, this is the subtlety of it. Whenever we begin to defend ourselves we inevitably point to the righteousness of our works or our conduct. 
And this violates the promise that God will do the defending. And uh, he doesn't like it when we defend ourselves. Uh, whenever we def get defensive, we in that moment compete with him who said, I'll handle it if you'll just shut up. But we just can't shut up. We, we get in there and, 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 and we, we say something and we defend ourselves. And the Lord says, oh, wish you hadn't done that. And uh, it violates the promise that God says, I will defend you. And we defend ourselves and we keep him from doing it. And it's self-righteousness. All right. Third example. When you are argumentative. Now there are some who are just by nature argumentative. I remember taking a psychological test years ago. And uh, I had a personality profile out on me. And, uh, and this, it was very embarrassing. Uh, I, uh, didn't, I didn't have this in my notes, and I'd, I've started, so I guess I better finish. But it revealed that, that inwardly I am a very argumentative person, and uh, it shows, you know, a problem, a problem. And uh, Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced in the whole world, held accountable to God. Well, being argumentative springs from a hostile spirit, even if it is repressed, that tends to be critical and fault-finding. And so be careful. I'm speaking to anybody who may have the same problem that I've just uh, appointed to. What does it mean to repress? It means to deny what we really feel. And so a lot of people push it down into their subconscious minds. And uh, they're inwardly hostile. Uh, they don't seem hostile. They, sometimes the sweetest people in the world uh, are inwardly hostile. You, you wouldn't know it. Uh, uh, they manage to cover it up by a very pleasing disposition. But inwardly, there's a little volcano in there uh, just waiting to erupt. And maybe it hasn't erupted for a long time, but it's wanting to erupt. And the person, it comes out in being fault-finding and critical. All right, the need to be argumentative in order to prove a point has self-righteousness as its origin. One has not come to terms with his or her own feelings. You, it because, it's because we have a need to prove that our view is correct and that another's is wrong. All right, the fourth example. I told you I'd come back to this word, smugness. Smugness. I define it as a feeling of self-righteousness whereby one doesn't think he knows he's got it right and he is a cut above others. Now, this is described in Revelation chapter 3 where the church of the Laodiceans uh, felt that they had uh, uh, arrived, as it were. Here's the way they put it. They said, uh, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. But Jesus says, don't you realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? 
And so the person who thinks, uh, is so sure that he's got, a, got it right, he's a cut above everybody else, uh, and uh, is, is just smug. Uh, you can't tell him anything. And uh, this is the person who takes the above axiom, having nothing to prove, and wears it on his or her sleeve. And, and, and just, you can't tell them anything. And they can be so sweet and nice, uh, but totally unteachable. This is the person who never complains, never explains, never apologizes, and never comes to terms with his own heart. The person like this wears the mask to cover up deep fears of being found out. And they cover up with everything from their accent to their being legalistic. And people like this are difficult to reach and to work with. Smugness. Anybody here have a problem with that? Fifth example. Fifth example. Holding a grudge. Uh, this is the heart of what grieves the Holy Spirit when... Uh, the Apostle Paul said, let all bitterness uh, cease, cease from you. Uh, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, uh, slander, brawling, every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And so this matter of holding a grudge uh, betrays uh, our self-righteousness. An unforgiving spirit betrays that we have forgotten our own sins. It betrays that we do not feel forgiven. And the result being that we feel guilty, which I would define as the feeling that someone is to blame. Whenever we hold a grudge, it is because we feel right in doing so. Uh, you know, I've used that uh, time gap illustration a while ago. Uh, I think the reason I've come up with that is that uh, it literally took me 20 years to see that I was holding a grudge against somebody. 20 years. And yet, if you had asked me, you know, 19 years before about it, I would, have, I would have rationalized it. I would have explained it away. I would have said, uh, oh, well, but, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're human, aren't we? Or I would have said, you don't know what they've done. In this case, you know, there's no way God's going to let that person get away with that. And, uh, but don't you think you should forgive him, R.T.? Oh, no problem. I, you know, I, I forgive him. I forgive him. And, uh, you know, you, you couldn't have made me see at the time that I was holding a grudge and uh, because it seemed right and what I think I was doing in that case is if if you had pinned me to pinned me down and and uh, boxed me into a corner I might have said yes I'm holding a grudge but this is the exception to the rule because in this case God knows the problem understands my temperament and how hurt I am and what they've done and it, you, you couldn't have got, got to me this is, this is the thing and, and uh, so I preach a lot about this 
I know how easy it is to hold a grudge and feel perfectly justified and believe that uh, we have not done anything as bad as the other person and we long for the day they are punished. Let me tell you when you can know you don't have a grudge anymore. You ready for this? When you not only don't want that person punished, you pray that they will not be punished. And you pray that from your heart. As long as you're still hoping that that person who has wronged you will get it, will get what's coming, you still got a grudge. And I, I expect about 15 of you to come up afterwards and say, well, you don't know. Well, let me tell you this story. Or you, I don't think I heard you right. Or I, you don't have to agree with me. You can, you can be Calvinist or Arminian. These, uh, this school of theology is designed to help you to think for yourself. But this is the position I'm taking. And you have to pray about it after you get home and decide if this is true. When Jesus said, pray for those who hurt you, he didn't mean for you simply to call their name. And he certainly didn't mean for you to uh, uh, say, God, get at them or hurt them. He wants you to come to the place that you don't want them found out. Because you don't want to be found out, do you? Do you want to be found out? Has anybody here got a skeleton in your cupboard? Or have you done anything you wish you hadn't done and you don't want anybody to know what you're really like? And when, when you want another person to be found out, that's your way of saying to God, deal with me the same way as I want you to deal with that other person. When you stop and think about it, you'll say, God, you've been so good to me. You'll be... It'll help you, I believe. And so, uh, holding a grudge. Sixth example of self-righteousness is referring to our good works. Matthew 6 is about the Pharisees who, who uh, when they gave money, they wanted everybody to know about it. Uh, if you see a plaque around here anywhere where this is given in honor of so-and-so, uh, I don't know that we have any. Come to think, I should have looked before I... I'm looking now, but chances are at some stage in the history of this church, maybe we don't even have any. Mr. Patton, do we have any plaques around given in loving memory of so-and-so? Oh, my. Well, chances are it was someone who couldn't give it without some string attached. I don't know who it is. Please don't tell me. And uh, it wasn't you, was it? We used to have somebody at the chapel, he'd give us big donations, but the trouble is he couldn't just put it in the collection bag like anybody else. He'd send it to me to give to the treasure. <laughs> and you could see what he was doing. Or, or if we spend time in prayer and fasting, uh, we want it out. The need to call attention to what we do or have done for the Lord. If we fast, we witness. I'll never forget it. I think I've told the... Uh, chapel people this story, but I don't think I've told it on a Friday. Uh, Louise and I used to eat uh, at this cafeteria in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, one day, there was this lady who was 
going from table to table. Because a lot of Christians there, uh, all eating uh, at about the same time, and we sort of knew, knew each other. And she came to our table, and she commenced describing what she'd been doing for the Lord, visiting people that week. I said, well, that's wonderful. And then she looked at me, and I'm not making this up, she said, the joy is in not telling it. I said, but you've just told me. She said, well, you're the only one I'm going to tell. But I knew she told everybody. We have to, to, to tell it how much we give up for the Lord. The need to refer to our spiritual experiences with the view to make others admire us. It could refer to the baptism of the Holy Spirit or our gifts. It may be the need to talk about our severe trials and how we dignified them. Sixth example, sorry, seventh, example number seven of self-righteousness claiming to have no sin. Now, I don't know of anything clearer than 1 John 1, 8, which says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Perhaps the most dangerous thing about self-righteousness is its blinding power. Its blinding power. Murderers and adulterers often see nothing at all in what they've done. Equally easy to overlook is our bitterness, the need to gossip, to complain. So whether it is sins of the spirit like gossiping or adultery, you can get so self-righteous you don't think you've done anything wrong at all. The closer we are to God, the more sensitive we are to our sin, the further we are, the more defensive we are, and blind to wrong. This is painful evening for us, isn't it? Eighth example of self-righteousness, self-pity, murmuring, grumbling, complaining, is the result of self-righteousness. It's our way of saying, I don't deserve this. Really? What is it we think we do deserve? Self-pity is an easy trap to fall into, but when it is seen as basically self-righteousness, perhaps we will confess it and run from it. Example number nine of being self-righteous, not forgiving ourselves. See, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, uh, many will say, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Well, perhaps you haven't thought it through, but this is a sign of self-righteousness. It implies we know better than God what is forgivable. And I have to tell you, and I speak with, with authority because I know the feeling of saying, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself until it hits you. That God says, are you smarter than I am? I've forgiven you. Who are you not to forgive yourself when I've forgiven you? And God doesn't like it when we don't affirm what he has done. And you see, when God forgives, he wants you to forgive yourself. 
Because he forgives you because he wants you to enjoy it. And you can never enjoy forgiveness as long as you're punishing yourself. But once you know you really are forgiven and that he wants you to forgive yourself, you almost feel embarrassed. You think, oh, I, you know, I feel so ashamed. I don't enjoy to have this good feeling, but God wants you to. And so when you don't forgive yourself, it's a sign of self-righteousness. It's, it's kind of a way of punishing yourself a little bit and making yourself feel bad. What God affirms, we must affirm. What God forgives, we must forgive. Or we compete with Him. And so let me put it to you. God wants us to forgive ourselves. Otherwise, it is not worth anything to our morale. And not to forgive ourselves is not taking the blood of Christ seriously enough. As far as the east is from the west, so far are our transgressions removed from us. Let me finish this section before we take a break. The tenth example of self-righteousness, the feeling that God owes me something. Now, do you feel that God owes you something? Have you sacrificed for him? Or you've done this or that, and you say, Lord, you've got to bless me. Look what I've done for you. Well, what are you going to make of this verse? Romans 9.20 Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him that formed it, Why did you make me like this? And so the heart of self-righteousness is to say, Well, God has a lot to answer for, and he owes me an explanation. You see, that's the way the unbeliever rationalizes. Well, if we do that, we are right back virtually to square one. That's the way the atheist reasons. Why doesn't God explain himself? It is the essence of unbelief, and it is Satan's weapon. If we feel that God owes us something, especially if it is because of something we have done, we're being pompous and arrogant. And so the first thing the sinner asks for is mercy. Luke 18, 13, I quoted Luke 18, 11 a while ago. Verse 13 was the publican who said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Christians never outgrow the need for asking mercy because that means we have no bargaining power. And we must never get it in our minds that God owes us something. Lord, I've done this for you. I paid my tithe and now look what's happened to my car. I said no to that temptation. And now I lost my job. I've given all this up for you, God, and look what you've done for me. God doesn't like it. It's self-righteous. We're always in need of mercy. And here's the last example before we take the break. The feeling of guilt. The feeling of guilt. This is another way of stating what I said a moment ago about not forgiving ourselves. When Joseph forgave his brothers, he said, don't be angry with yourselves. Because when we feel guilty... We're keeping a record of our own wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. When we have not torn up the record of our own wrongs, it gives the devil an easy opportunity to bring us right down. And here is a word that you may have a little trouble believing. I've wrestled with it for a long time, but I've come to the conclusion 
And it's the sweetest feeling in the world to know God does not want us to feel guilty. When we don't forgive others, we try to punish them by giving them a guilt trip. If God had not forgiven, only then would he want us to feel guilty. But when he does forgive us, he wants us to enjoy it. Well, on that point, Bill, we stop and welcome back. We missed you last week. And uh, if you're still here after our hymn, we'll conclude this evening and this session. Now let me discuss two levels of self-righteousness. Uh, this should be fairly obvious, but it's first uh, that of the non-Christian. Uh, as comes out by the words, I thank thee that I'm not as other men. Uh, that certainly is not a Christian speaking. Uh, unfortunately, a Christian sometimes talks like this. And when he does, he becomes self-righteous. Now we need to remember... And on top of that is the devil who wants to keep you in that state. So remember, uh, we're already blind to the glory of Christ and blind to our own sin. And then on top of that unbelief is the God of this world who just ensures blindness. Now, if that can happen to the non-Christian, because it's there by nature, just remember that in every saint you are that close to becoming blind to your sin again and the devil will ride that and keep you blind. Just as I said, my own grudge I held for 20 years. You couldn't have told me I was holding a grudge or if I was that, that it was really that wrong. And so be careful about this. All right, the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict of sin. We're talking about the non-Christian, but you see, he continues to do it to the Christian. And the work of the Holy Spirit is to show the need of a mediator. As I've already said, the basic reason people do not come to Christ is because of self-righteousness. They can claim to be atheists and say, that's the reason I'm not a Christian, I don't believe in God. But behind that claim is sheer smugness. Before one can be saved, you've got to see the need of a Savior, the need of forgiveness of sin through the blood of Christ, the need of the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus, which means giving up hope of salvation in good works or personal merit. It's putting all of your eggs into one basket, Jesus' death. Jesus' death. I've got one hope. Jesus died for me. Now, what about the other level, the Christian? Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, put it like this to the church at Corinth. You remember I quoted them in a moment ago. They said, we are of Apollos, we follow Paul, we follow Christ. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul says, it, this is godly sarcasm. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings. And that without us. And then he says, how I wish you really had become kings. You see, what happened in Corinth is that these 
Christians, and as best as we can tell, Paul wrote this letter four years after he founded the church, so they couldn't have been that old in Christ. In that short of time, they thought they knew more than Paul. You couldn't tell them anything. They, they had become super spiritual, and they'd become self-righteous. Now, when I talk about the self-righteous Christian, in one sense, this is an impossibility, for the Christian is a person whose only hope of salvation is the work of Christ on the cross. But, unfortunately, unfortunately, Christians can become self-righteous and in a different sense. And it comes out in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort. I fear that all of the examples I've referred to tonight of self-righteousness can at times apply to the Christian. It is something to be hated, for God hates it. It's one of the greatest obstacles to our own spiritual growth and one of the chief ways we grieve the Holy Spirit. Do you remember I said to you a few months ago, it is so easy to grieve the Holy Spirit. In fact, when you realize how easy it is, you just sometimes, I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but I have. I think, Lord, I don't know what to do. Surely, surely there's no way I could avoid this or that. And then we become self-righteous in that moment and say, Ah, God, you shouldn't have let that happen. But to enjoy the ungrieved spirit in us is, is a remarkable accomplishment. And uh, this is why I've said uh, so often, the love in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, one has experienced just a flash of it, just a taste. Uh, you remember how I explained the dove came down on Jesus and John the Baptist said, I knew that the one on whom the dove came and remained is the one. And John said, I saw the dove come down and it remained on him. I remember when those words first gripped me, when I realized something about Jesus inside not one bit of self-righteous, and yet he's the only person who never sinned. Not one bit of self-righteousness in Jesus, yet he's the only person who never sinned. No grudge, no anger, no need to be argumentative, no self-pity. So that when the dove came down on Jesus, it just stayed. Well, that tells you everything about Jesus. But with me, the dove comes down and gets within two inches of my head and flutters back off again. Now this is the thing. I'm not, by giving this presumptuous lesson on how to overcome self-righteousness, assuming that we're all going to do it, but if God will deal with us a little bit and convict us and, 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 and so get to us, and we can see that our attitudes have been wrong. 
it just may be, it just may be, it will be just a little easier to live with. Maybe. That's the idea. All right. Here we go. As we bring our lesson down to the final section, how to overcome self-righteousness. This is the way forward. I have no doubt about it. It's not saying any of us has done it. But I can say this. Here's a good beginning. Here is a good beginning, number one. Recognize it as your own problem. I, I won't ask for a show of hands because I don't want any glibness, and I'm sure all of you may raise your hand. Uh, but I don't know when I've dealt with a lesson that's so convicting to me personally as this one. And I, and, I, and I wished I hadn't even started it. But if we do not see it in ourselves that we're self-righteous, there's no way forward. You see, it's one thing to say, well, I know I'm not perfect. It's quite another to say, my problem is I am so self-righteous. Now, we've had 11 examples, 11 examples and I want you to ask whether any of them could describe you and how many. The fewer number you admit to probably means the more self-righteous you are. The greater number you admit to probably suggests you are closer to overcoming it, but not necessarily. So, so I don't want anybody to say, I ticked all seven, thank you very much. Well, so did I. But I haven't overcome it. All right. Now, it gets, that's the easiest part. Now it starts getting hard. How to overcome self-righteousness? Refuse to compute. I'll explain that. Refuse to compute any wrong done to you. 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says, Love keeps no record of wrongs. Now, did you ever find yourself saying, I'll remember that. I'll remember that. <laughs> surprise, surprise, you do. Normally, you don't have a good memory. Say, I just can't remember names, but I'll remember that. Why do you remember it? You're keeping a record of it. Why do you keep a record of it? You want to use it. Love keeps no record of wrongs. All right. I say don't compute the wrong. Don't compute it. What does that mean? It means we refuse to allow any wrong to be programmed into our minds. If you say, I'll remember that, You've, you have computed it. And at one, some time along the way, you just push a little button that calls it up on the screen, and there it is. And you use it. Because it was, in the, it was in the computer. And so, the way to overcome self-righteousness is you don't allow it to be programmed. And, it, and if there's no wrong recorded 
You don't have it to use. It's just not there. You say, but look what they did to me. I know. I know. And this is the hard part. This is the hard part. But the extent to which we do this will be the extent to which the dove gets closer and closer. Because an unforgiving spirit is what will make the dove fly off. I don't care how spiritual you say you are. You say, don't you talk to me like that. I happen to be a church leader. Don't you talk to me like that. I happen to be a minister of a church. Don't you talk to me like that. I have the gift of tongues. Don't you talk to me like that. I spend a lot of time in prayer every day. Don't you talk to me like that. You don't know what I've given up for the Lord. You may be outwardly a very pious person, nice disposition, looked up to. But if you've got an unforgiving spirit, that dove just doesn't get near you, doesn't get near me. Total forgiveness is when it is as though no wrong had been committed. That is the way God forgives us. Third, how to overcome self-righteousness. Refuse to say anything that is negative. Refuse to say anything that is negative. James 1.19. It's a verse that I wish I could say that I've mastered in, in practice, but listen to it. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. All problems that flow from self-righteousness don't really get off the ground until the tongue takes over. But listen to this. The tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire. A world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. If we don't speak, no hell will have opportunity to break out. When we speak a word that flows from the bitter fountain of self-righteousness, the devil gets in. And so, James said... Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Negative is anything that is critical, judgmental, and not designed to bring the good feeling. Satan is always negative. And when I'm negative, I'm going to mirror the devil. If you get around me and I'm negative, I'm going to give you a, a, a bad feeling. And you come and, you, and you're feeling good. And, and I say something negative. And you go, oh, oh. I'm afraid I've done it. When what we say 
will not create a good feeling. It will cause problems. And so that's what, that's what John meant by a stumbling block. Sticking your foot in it. Negative. Well, you say, I, I, I can't help it. Well, I'm helping you, if I can, by saying just don't say anything. If you feel it, don't say it. It's when we speak that the devil gets in. All right? The fourth, the fourth, refuse to clear your name. Refuse to clear your name. Anybody here, you want vindication more than anything in the world. You've taken your stand and no one agrees with you. People said things about you and it's not very nice. And you, you want your name cleared. Well, if you have vindication coming, I promise you, God will see that you get it. Because God doesn't like it when untruth is said about you. And you're his child and it hurts him. It hurts him. And he will just say to me, R.T., if you'll just shut up, I'll handle it. And I go three days. I say, Lord, how's this? And then the fourth day, whoops, there it was. And God says, you do it, you do it. The problem is, we, we just can't wait for God to do it. I've said it so often, the best thing God does is vindicating he loves to do it. He loves to do it. Do you, do you ever watch the A-Team? I'm sure you all are too godly to watch, watch that. We used to watch the A-Team. And there's always that part in the program when, when the, the head man with a big cigar in his mouth said, I love it when a plan falls together or something like that. Uh, oh boy, why, why did I say this? I was getting ready to say... You know, God loves it when, when it sounds like, oh boy. <laughs> if you can just understand what I'm trying to say, God doesn't often get to do it completely his way. He did it with Joseph. You see, he did it with Joseph. When a plan falls together and God cleared Joseph. And he would do it with us. But we just don't let him. How wonderful when we keep our hands off and God has the privilege of doing it. And so vindicating is one of God's favorite enterprises. He is the expert, has ways of doing it you would never dream of. Leave everything to him. Don't raise a little finger to put the record straight. Watch him work, but in his own time and manner. Live completely by faith alone. That's the last thing I'm saying. Live completely by faith alone. And here's a great verse in this connection. Perhaps it's never gripped you before, but I'd love it to grip you. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5. Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. That's living by faith alone. Don't try to figure out things in advance. Faith is believing without seeing. 
Faith is having the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So be willing to understand nothing that is going on at the time. Uh, maybe you're in a situation where at the moment everything looks so bleak and uh, never will forget uh, a difficult situation we were in since I've been minister here a few years ago. And uh, it was uh, for Louise and me one of our most difficult trials and it was looking so bad and I looked at her and she looked back at me and she sort of went like this and I, and I knew what she was thinking and it just looked bleak. Do you know, in that moment, I heard a voice. It wasn't audible because you couldn't have heard it, but it was clear. It just, the voice said, lean not on your own understanding. Lean not on your own understanding. Because my understanding was, there's just no way out of this. There's just no way out of this. And Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. That's living by faith. And uh, God knows what's going on. And wait and see what God does. And His way of bringing things to pass are beyond tracing out. How He does it is amazing. Say nothing whatever so that what God does will be to His glory alone. Well, now, those are the five ways to overcome self-righteousness, if we can just live that way, if we can live that way. Now, what is it like to the degree we overcome? And notice the operative words, to the degree we overcome, because we're not going completely to overcome it in this life. We would be glorified. But we can, we can try, and we can get bursts, and perhaps more bursts, Perhaps that dove will, will come down and settle. Oh, would that he would just remain on me. And he's willing to do that to the degree I overcome self-righteousness. And what would it be like? First, great peace would flow. When peace is absent, something is wrong. Did you hear that? When peace is absent, something is wrong. The ungrieved spirit is recognizable by peace. Second thing, what do we like if, we, if, we're, if we've overcome, or to the degree, that is, we've overcome self-righteousness? There will be an absence of judgmentalism. Do you know why I judge? Do you know why I judge? I haven't been broken. I may think I've been broken and then the next thing I know, I've pointed the finger. But when we're broken, there's no judgmentalism left in us. Third thing, what is it like to the degree we overcome self-righteousness? Pleasantness. Self-righteous people are basically miserable people. When we let go of self-righteousness, we feel pleasant. And I would have thought we're going to be pleasant to live with. Fourth, people will seek us out. Self-righteousness turns people off. Unself-righteous morality attracts. That's when people are 
not immoral, but they're godly and clean living people, but they're not self-righteous about it. Unself-righteous morality attracts. That's what people liked about Jesus. They sought him out. Fifth thing, we began to love people. Doesn't mean you're going to become an extrovert. If you're an introvert, you can stay an introvert. But it will show that you care. Sixth, God will become more real because self-righteousness really puts him off. And when we let it go, he moves in. And I'm just hoping, I'm hoping it for myself, I'm hoping it for each of you, that this is going to make a difference. And you're just, there's going to be a release of the Spirit in us. And it'll be almost as like the dove came down. And wouldn't it be wonderful if all of us were released from this and the dove just came down and settled on all of us. And I would have thought the seventh thing is true. Fresh insights into the Scriptures emerge. Self-righteousness grieves the Spirit. And when the Spirit is grieved, when the Spirit is ungrieved, he shows us things in his word that we had never seen. And you don't need a school of theology for that. The Holy Spirit will show you things. Well, we're going to bring our last evening of this session to a close. When we were converted, it was because we climbed down from our self-righteousness. I would have thought this is the way we must continue to live in all our dealings with people until we get to heaven. I didn't say it would be easy, but I will say it's the best way to live. May God grant that we do this more than ever. Well, that concludes uh, this session of our School of Theology. Our next session uh, begins the last Friday of this month, isn't it? Last Friday of April, if you want to come back, hope you do. Uh, it will be a little shorter. Uh, uh, sign up if you feel that God is blessing you with these. Uh, that's the reason for it. If it's making a difference in your life, some are more interesting than others, but some of those that are a little harder to get into may do you more good. That's why I said at the beginning, come to all of them. And our third session uh, from the end of uh, April to the end of June, just uh, eight weeks. Uh, and I believe, aren't they out? The new little brochure that shows the first one is on the gifts of the Spirit. The week after that, how to find your gift. So we continue with one doctrinal type and then practical. Tonight, as you know, has been practical. All right, before we go home, has anybody got a question? If so, uh, be easy on me, but ask it. I'll do my best to answer you. Come to the microphone. There's one over here, one over there. Whoever gets there first will get it out first. Winner. All right. Not a question, Dr. Kendall, but an observation. All that you've said this evening is, of course, very appropriate. But it seems to, it tends to lead us to the greatest obstacle to the Christian life, which is self-examination or introspection. The more we think about our shortcomings and our failings, the larger we ourselves loom in, our, in these considerations. We have to get rid of the us in the equation. We have to obey the first two commandments. We have to recognize that everything that we have and everything that we do and think and feel comes from God. 
and we have to recognize that we must love our fellows and do everything that we can for them because God is working through us. Anyway. Oh, well, I want to thank you for that. I think you put your finger on a, a very valid thing that this kind of uh, study does lead to self-examination and you can you can look at yourself too carefully and get very depressed and uh, I really preach against too much self-examination uh, so I'm agreeing with you brother and I just pray that the Holy Spirit will still use this and get us to look on Christ but thank you for that alright let's take this side and come over to you Ashley would you say there's a very large overlap between self-righteousness and pride <laughs> yes that's the, that's the heart of it, isn't it? You've just told me I won't have to do an evening on pride. Thank you. So it's largely the same thing, really? Yeah, except that pride could have, uh, could have reference to things that have nothing to do with spiritual things. But yeah, absolutely. Right. Thank you. Thanks. Boy, these have been great. Keep it up. Right. Uh, it's about the ministry of rebuke and how, what the differences are between rebuking and uh, being judgmental and speaking negative things? Very good question and not an easy one to answer. Uh, the verse that comes to mind is Galatians 6.1. If you see a brother overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. So uh, the rebuke uh, is couched with, with such a concern that this, this is me except by the grace of God and, and uh, far be it for me to come to you and talk to you when this could happen to me. That kind of spirit uh, is the right approach. If you can do it that way, then you will win a brother and not turn him off. It's the best I can do on that, but it's a very good question. All right? I'm referring back to um, where you say we are never allowed by the Holy Spirit to offer opinions on spiritual state of others, etc. I think you're going to know where I'm coming from here. But um, I've been praying for people close to me because their Christian lives are in bondage because of this sort of thing. And I just wonder now whether I'm being self-righteous in doing that. Could you say how I can pray or how we can all pray for people that we feel are gripped by this sort of thing, become unreachable and unteachable? Um, I still think it's true what I said, but I take your point. Uh, what I would think I meant by that, I know what I meant by it, is that you don't offer your opinion to them. You don't point a finger at them. That's all I meant. But I'm not being self-righteous in thinking that they're self-righteous. Or is well, that just splitting hairs? Uh, <laughs> there's always that danger too, isn't it? Because to say, I, I, well, you've got it right and you haven't. I mean, you, you poor pitiful folks over there. I wish you were where I am. If you're not careful, you could jump out of the frying pan into the fire. Yes, uh, So... Uh, I think uh, you can pray for them, uh, pray for them, yes, absolutely, but uh, don't pray for them like the Pharisee uh, described in, in Luke 18, I thank you that I'm not like these people. If because, God were to answer yeah. a prayer like that, I mean, people in that state are going to feel absolutely dreadful, aren't they? I can't feel good about that, can I? I would find the only way you could say anything to them is if they come to you yeah. and say, you know, you seem so free. And, and you make me feel like I'm in bondage. Uh, even then you don't have to comment on their bondage. Uh, it, 
it's, it's a delicate thing, Winifred. I don't say it's easy, but I, I know exactly where you're coming from, and perhaps some of you know the problem. All right, is this going to be our last question? My Come question on. has been answered. Someone else, get in there or we're going to stop. No, I'm not asking you to leave. I was just trying to get, get, get some business over here. There we got some. Now, because we've got three minutes left, carry on. It has been answered. It has been answered? Yes. Well, how come it didn't answer yours, Bill? Can I just make a comment on Winifred's question? I, I think there's a difference in, in what you said between, between being judgmental and being discerning. I mean, if somebody comes to you and asks for church membership, you have to use discernment. If somebody comes to you and asks, can I be baptized, you have to use discernment as to whether you know, they're really saved or not. That is not being judgmental and pointing the finger. Um, it, is, it is using wisdom, surely. Yeah, well, I would agree with that. And I think, yeah, thank you for that. Okay, last question of the session. Make it a good one, and, and don't, don't be hard on me, Alan. How can I do both? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a thought that occurred to me when you brought back uh, the NIV's translation, Love Keeps No Record of Wrong. Our Lord... Uh, tells us that if our by the way you are keeping a record of wrongs there because you don't think I should have ever brought the NIV did you <laughs> but I just kept a record of wrongs when I called it back to your attention five seconds later I was tempted to actually bring an NIV to the microphone and uh, quote it to you in the NIV but I, I decided against it <laughs> but anyway uh, our, our Lord tells us to uh, if our brother trespasses against us uh, then we are to rebuke him and if he repents then to forgive him um, how do you balance the two I mean is the keeping of a record of wrong in 1 Corinthians 13 to do with perhaps hold, holding a grudge in a sort of vindictive way as opposed to having caution towards people who do do you wrong uh, and you've obviously got to recollect that and take that into consideration when you're dealing with them well, in the future. I would only say this, that the fact that Jesus said forgive him means you've got to forgive him. If, if he, he repents, repents, you have to forgive yeah. him. But he's not saying by that, don't forgive him unless he repents. That is not implied. It is only saying if he repents, forgive him. Because you've got to forgive him anyway. Otherwise, it's bitterness. I, I take what you say, but surely there is a place in dealing with people that if somebody, say, is uh, not talking about a, a Christian brother, perhaps, but some people are uh, the kind of people who continue to lie and to deceive one, surely you have to take that into consideration. It's not That's different. That, in that case, you, it's not personal. See, that, that's different. That's, that's talking about uh, where a church has to look out to, in the body and uh, uh, where there's no personal feeling involved. That's different. Are you, say, are you saying that love keeps no record of wrongs only applies in, uh, between Christians? 
Surely, what I'm saying is, if in an interpersonal relationship with somebody, uh, somebody acts uh, malevolently, then surely there is a place for keeping a, a, a record of that wrong, not in a vindictive way, but just in a cautionary way. Well, uh, that's the way I used to reason. And I know that uh, I got myself into more trouble. I don't say I've succeeded totally. I'm working on it. But you're giving a rationale for maintaining a record of wrongs, and I couldn't accept that. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Well, will I see you April 30th? I'm afraid to ask. Happy Easter. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we just ask that your Holy Spirit will put his own seal upon this evening and this session. That seal being that it makes a difference in our lives, in our outlook. I thank you for the time we've had together, for those who've come. Sometimes those who've come in so tired and almost went home instead of coming here. And for the encouraging words we've heard and, and for the blessing I myself have received in preparing these. And I just pray it'll make a difference in my life as well. Until we meet again, protect us, cover us by the blood of Christ. Supply our every need. Guide us by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Good night.